0: Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Style Guides podcast, a podcast dedicated to all things Pattern Library and Style Guide related. Uh, My name is Brad Frost.
1: I'm Anna Debenham.
0: And today we are absolutely delighted to be talking with the infamous Jeremy Keith. Jeremy, how are you?
2: Hello. I'm fine. Thank you. How are you, Brad?
0: I'm doing excellent.
2: Good. How How are you, Anna?
0: I'm good, thanks.
1: Good, good.
0: Excellent. We're all doing good. It is, it is a, a wonderful, well, I don't know how the weather is there, but whatever. It, it's beautiful. It's <laughs> gorgeous. We're on different continents. Um, Jeremy, do you want to kick us off and just sort of give us a little bit of a background? I know you like to have, have some fun with what your exact job title is, but could you just give a little overview about who you are and what you do?
2: Uh, sure, I, I I just updated my job title yesterday. As a matter of fact, um, what are you? I now? was. Yeah, I'm currently shepherd of unknown futures.
1: <laughs> nice.
2: Yeah, I thought that sounded good. Andy <laughs> Dennis gave me that one, and before that, I was uh, I don't know commander of the armies of the seven kingdoms or something like that. So generally, you, I don't take much stock in job titles because um, I just I don't find them that useful. Um, but in terms of describing what I do, my, my stock answer is, is really glib, and I'm like, I make websites. Mm-hmm. Although, you know, these days, there's so much involved in making a website that that doesn't really tell you anything at all. Um, historically, I guess I've been involved more in the front-end side of things, HTML, CSS, JavaScript, all that good stuff. But also, you know, I've done web design. I've, I've called myself a web designer in, at times. Um bit of everything really generally a clear left um i guess my role is sort of um yes on the front end development side of things but more in a kind of strategic overarching way as opposed to not necessarily you know having my hands down in the code um coding stuff for deliverables partly that's because i'm just not very fast at doing that stuff I, i take way too long to to do anything and so it wouldn't be a very good use of my time um the other people at clearly left are much quicker at doing that, so it's better to have them do that um also i kind of I get bored so easily I just kind of find myself flitting from thing to thing um so as a way I guess of turning that to an advantage, my job is kind of flitting from thing to thing on a daily basis um checking out stuff um letting the other people in the company know about stuff i've i've stumbled across um feeding that into the work code um, reviews code reviews, that kind of stuff yeah we we have a front-end powwow every thursday where we kind of you know talk through st- stuff on the on the front-end development side of things but i honestly don't know what my job is i mean I'm, I'm doing client work as well um but it's i'm not exactly clear what i do and i guess a lot of people would talk about their work in terms of their outputs so you know a UX person might talk about wireframes, or a visual designer might talk about Photoshop or Sketch, and front-end developer would talk about HTML and CSS. But I generally don't have many outputs. It's, um, you know, a lot of talking and yakking, and thinking.
0: Yeah. So, so as part of this sort of more strategic, sort of overarching bird's-eye view look of of sort of what your your agency is working on and and what the relationship with the clients is is, um, you know you've had a lot of experience working with sort of style guides and developing pattern libraries for your clients and things like that. How, like at, at a strategic level, have you sort of seen that evolve into, you know, what it is that, that you, your, your company offers the clients and, and how that all fits in?
2: Yeah. I mean, on, on the one level, it's, Purely an implementation detail is like, you know, whether we'll hand over um, a pattern library or whether we're handing over mm-hmm. something else. Um, at another level, it's kind of fundamental to how you approach thinking about um, deliverables, how you approach thinking about the, the interface. Um, depends how you, how you come at it. Um, you know, um, for the most part, people don't hire clear left for, you know, pattern libraries or for del- any particular deliverable. They're hiring left for design work, mm-hmm. um, not necessarily even visual design, you know, UX and, and, and more of that thinky-thinky stuff, I guess. Um, but when it comes to that that front-end, if we do end up doing front-end code um, for the client, then time has taught us that handing over a pattern library, a sort of style guide type thing, is definitely more valuable than handing over a set of pages, for example. Um, so a lot of it's, it's kind of the systems thinking, which has been evolving for many, many years um, at Clear Left. Um, I know Anna's mentioned um, uh, Natalie, Natalie Down, who used to work at, at Clear Left, and now she's at uh, Lanyard, bought uh-huh. by Eventbrite. And uh, she's an amazing front-end developer. And she started um, talking and thinking about this this sort of very systems thinking approach to CSS and HTML uh, many years ago, and we started kind of. Putting it into practice in in our deliverables, like if we were handing over something, how you know how can we hand over a system instead of just handing over you know a finite mm-hmm. set of pages and expecting the client to extract what they need from those pages? How can we give them the extracted bits that they mm-hmm. actually need to put together all the pages that we couldn't possibly consider? Um, so a lot of that really started with Natalie, um, you know, because ClearLeft... Left doesn't ever do a full site build. For example, we don't do uh, back-end development, clear left. So we do um, UX, we do visual design, and sometimes we do front-end, not every project, sometimes, but we never do actual build, the actual, you know, back-end, PHP, Ruby, Python, whatever. And so over the years, we've had to get very, very good at delivering our deliverables to the client, whether it's, you know, design stuff or whether it's front-end stuff. Um, because some, we're never the last people to touch this stuff. There's always somebody after us. Uh, and, I, you know, that was definitely tricky to do at first, but we've been around for 10 years now, so we've gotten better and better at doing it. And this idea of a, of a pattern library has definitely been, I'd say, the most important development when it comes to front-end deliverables. Um, not entirely sure whether it works as you know, when it comes to visual design and and, and UX and that kind of stuff. But certainly for front-end deliverables, the pattern library idea um, has been really, really strong and it's worked really, really well.
1: And how has that evolved over the years?
2: I'm trying to think back to um, when we would have first started to do it. I mean, I think it would have kind of snuck in the back door. that we Initially, yes, we would have still been delivering pages and we'd kind of throw in this um, collection of pieces as well. Right mm. here's so it's been more like the, the pages are are deliverables. But here's also this collection of the pieces um, sort of cut out into their individual bits. And then over time, that's flipped to the extent to where we make it very clear that this pattern library is the deliverable. Now, mm. we'll also give you some pages, but these pages, they're not the deliverable. These pages are just examples of the pattern library in action. And that switch has been has been you know, a gradual thing over the years, I think, going from we deliver pages and, oh, here's um, a style guide to we deliver a style guide and, oh, here's some pages that use the style guide. Um, and that second approach is definitely, definitely more valuable, certainly for for other developers taking over um, who have to build this thing, who have to actually put it into action. That's definitely more valuable. Now, it can be trickier if it comes to, um, you know, other stakeholders, like, you know, the boss, the client, yeah. the guy who yeah. signs the checks. Maybe they need to see more page-like things. Maybe they need to they they prefer to have a shiny comp or whatever, and mm-hmm. we might have to throw them a bone uh, with with something a bit shinier. But in our experience, developers really, really like getting a pattern library as a deliverable.
0: Right? Do you, do you guys sell? The, this idea up front? And, and again, is there ever... It, it, like Obviously, developers and, and designers to some extent, at least in my experience, are are sort of on board with this. They're like, yeah, yeah, we get it. We see the value in it. But again, even at that sales process, whenever you're sort of negotiating... You know the scope of work and what's going to be done, and what what you're actually on the hook for. Do people ever uh, push back, or are they scared, or hesitant, or or just confused at at this concept, or or how does no, that I mean, work?
2: Each project's different, so we don't like to have a set process or sure. even a set set of deliverables for every project. You know, it, it'll change on a project by project basis. But that said, broadly, I think you could characterize most projects that involve some kind of deliberal is falling into one of two categories. And the first category is that pattern library category of we're gonna, you know, do design work and we're gonna hand over the set of components that you then take and you you can put together into an infinite variety of pages of, of patterns of components. Um, but that's not the right solution for every project. And broadly speaking, the other kind of project is much more where uh, a prototype is going to be a better deliverable. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're, they're actually very, very different in, in how you deliver that stuff because uh, for a pattern library, we're saying we, this is quality code. Like we're, we're hand, we've really thought about the HTML here, and we've really thought about the CSS, and we think this is the best little you know, widget and component, and you can just take this and you can drop it into your live site, and it, it's going to be great. And the way you approach um, prototyping is the complete opposite. Which is this is not production code. Don't you dare drop this into an actual public <laughs> website. This happens to be written in HTML and CSS and JavaScript, but it could just as easily have been written in you know Keynote or um, right. some other tool. It's what we're providing is a way of demonstrating interaction, of demonstrating you know visual design, of demonstrating uh, animation, something like that, right? But we are not saying this is code for you to use. So. In a very, very broad way, when we're doing you know, work that involves front end development, it'll tend to fall into one of those two camps. Either uh, this is code that's being delivered to the client for them to use in a live site, or this is happens to be code, but the code is only there to illustrate the design and the actual final code needs to be written from scratch in a very different mindset. Um, so We tend when going back to the question about you know when we're the initial sort of pitching on projects and and discussing deliverables, we tend to get a feel pretty early on of which direction um, the project would be going in. Like, oh, this sounds like a job for um, you know delivering a pattern library. Oh, okay, no, pattern library is not what they need here. This is about you know some other kind of problem solving, and we need to deliver a prototype, you know, a working prototype um, to demonstrate the design, but not to be used in production so we tend to get an idea pretty early on um, and then i guess sell them on on whichever one we think is is the right solution there
1: and do you tend to work straight in code or do you kind of come up with mock-ups first and then and then get them built
2: there's nearly always mock-ups first i guess the question is how long you spend um refining those mock-ups or how quickly Mm. you decide okay this is good enough to get a, a, a to get going right and again, that, that will depend on the client, you know, on some projects, clients absolutely get it. And they're like, yeah, yeah, the, you know, it's fine that we're not deciding, you know, in the mock-up. There's that wonderful phrase, right, from from Dan Mall about deciding yep. in the browser, which I really like because... Um, and we, so, backing up a bit, the whole question of mock-ups or why do mock-ups exist? This is, I guess, a philosophical question that we've been tackling a long time. I mentioned that we had front-end powwows every Thursday. There's also like a design review, design crit that happens once a week. And it inevitably devolves into this like discussion of process and, and workflow and all of this. <laughs> uh, and this question of like, well, what, what's a mock-up for? You know, why, why does it exist? This comes up. Crazy. And um, yeah, this existential question. But, so here's my take. Here's my take is that there's, there's three reasons um, a mock-up could exist. One is that it's for buy-in. It's basically for a sign-off. You're mocking something up to present it to a decision-maker who then says, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, right? Mm-hmm. So that's kind of this decision-making thing. I guess what, what Dan would be talking about, you know, deciding in the mock-up. Um, that's, that's use number one. Use number two is it's a deliverable for a front-end developer. So in other words, it's something a visual designer gives to a front-end developer um, to get turned into code, okay? So that's a separate use case. Now, here's problem number one is that mock-ups made for the first use case end up getting used for the second, right? Yeah. So if you're designing for sign-off, everything's perfect. Everything lines up at the top (laughs) and the bottom. It's exactly the right amount of data. Everything looks beautiful, right? It's not a real test of, you know, the edge case of the content. And unless you then make further mockups that are more accurate, uh, you know, reflect the the real situation with content, um, and you just hand over this perfect uh, situation to developers. Well, everyone's just going to get disappointed, right? The developers are going to be frustrated because it's not accurate. The designer's frustrated because hey, that doesn't look like my mockup, and the client is frustrated because you know that doesn't look like what they were presented with. Yep. Oh, and then there's a third use of a mockup, which is for a visual designer to think, right? That they use it's a, a they they have a tool that they're comfortable with, like Photoshop, Sketch, Illustrator, whatever. And it's the fastest way for them to get ideas down is to create a mock-up.
1: Like that, element collages.
2: Yeah, or, or even even a full interface, even, you know, making a page. But the difference is that, that the reason for its existence is that third use case and not those first two, right? Yep. So for a designer to go away and create, uh, here's a page in Photoshop or here's a page in Sketch, that's absolutely fine, I think, as long as the reason for doing that is to get ideas out. It's not then fine to then present that to a client and say, what do you think? Give us sign-off. And it's not fine to present that to a developer and say, there you go, now go and build that. There are three very different use cases. The getting the designs out of your head, uh, getting sign-off, and uh, a template for, for build. Right? Those are three different use cases. And yet what happens is a single mock-up will end up kind of doing all three.
0: <laughs> you better so, believe it, yeah. Right? So yeah. this is
2: the problem I found with mockups, we found in general, is that this mismatch, I guess, of expectations. And this is why I love Dan's idea of deciding in the browser. So for that first use case, you're talking about deciding in the mockup. You show the client, they give you sign-off, the decision has been made. Then you move on to use case number two, where you're handing it over to the developer to to, to turn into real code, and that's when reality hits And, you know, differences crop up, questions come up that you hadn't anticipated, but now it's too late to make the decision to say, oh, well, look, that's been agreed, that's been decided, that's what the client signed off on. So I really like Dan's idea of deciding in the browser where you say, yeah, you do stuff in Photoshop or Sketch or whatever you're comfortable with. It's more about that third use case. Use whatever tool is comfortable with you. But you don't go to the client and say, you know, approval or not approval until you've got it in Web browsers until you've got it in code because that's just so much more accurate to reality, right? So much more realistic, and makes much more sense to decide in that point. But going back to the original question, would there be mockups preceding the the markup? I guess the CSS, Um, yeah, almost always. There's almost always some kind of mockup. Now, in an extreme case, that mockup could be literally paper, could be pencil on paper. More. Often or not, it is usually a tool like Photoshop or Sketch, you know, something. But like I said, there's definitely diminishing returns in polishing that mock-up too much, like making it perfect, because what's the point? The actual place to do that and make it perfect is is in the code, when it's in web browsers. Mm -hmm. So the right level of fidelity, I guess, is the big question. And that changes uh, from person to person, from project to project, from client to client. I don't think there's a right answer. The right answer is to figure out what's the right level of fidelity for the mockup for this project for this yep. client.
0: Yep. And do, you, do so do the the designers working at Clear Left sort of bringing this all back to sort of you know what this all means for the if, if it is indeed a, a project where you're delivering a, a pattern library. In in my experience, sort of working with with sort of more visual designers working in static tools, um, there's. This tendency, and a lot of it's due to the tools themselves, just aren't actually as sophisticated as HTML, CSS, and and JavaScript as far as actually developing sort of more of a pattern-based workflow uh, so, so what we'll have is I'll, I'll have designers, and historically, uh, sort of designers making sort of bespoke homepage designs, and then we'll get into sort of a you know an interior page, and then th- that will have its own sort of look and feel. And so, so I guess like, how does Clear Left's designers? work with, uh, how are they aware of this whole pattern library approach, the systems thinking, like, how do you sort of instill that into your culture and how do they sort of execute in in sort of a pattern-based way, even if they are working in sort of a static tool?
2: Yeah, it's interesting. I I think that the systems approach that, you know, came from the front end with people like Natalie thinking this way has definitely sort of infected Mm -hmm the the visual design part as well, which tends to happen sooner, um, even if even if it's almost retroactive, like the designer maybe finds it easier to you know just go away and just design screens into um, interfaces. Yep. But then they case. might retroactive. Yeah, yeah. but use then case retroactively, three, right? Yeah, use case three exactly. But then retroactively, okay. Now I'll extract the patterns and mm-hmm. put them together, and that's when they might notice inconsistencies in their own designs. Like, oh, I thought this button was just meant to be the same in all five screens but actually just slightly different here and i'll need to adjust that and make it consistent um because you know if they're doing good design it should be consistent there should be a logic behind it um so that, yeah there's definitely been uh, more systems thinking happening on the, the visual design side and we've tried things like style tiles uh element collages these kind of things there was um, a
1: really good blog post um i think paul Lode wrote it about um how john had been doing um, kind of style tiles and he used to do them vertically yeah but yeah. now he does them horizontally because right, they were yeah. too much like a mock-up
2: right again you know every client's different every project's different and I was on some project where in in showing them um, a document which is meant to show here's a bunch of elements collage right together mm. the client was mistaking it for an actual page yep. um, which you could kind of see, like, uh, it kind of makes sense that that's what our brains would interpret that file as. But as soon as John flipped it and made it um, horizontal rather than vertical, and straight away it was clear oh no, I'm just looking at a collection of, of components, um, one after the other, but they don't form a cohesive whole. It's, it's like just these you know, separate components. So that was really interesting. And, and that's something that actually Dan, because you know, we got the element collage thing from Dan Mall, and he's taken that back on board himself and going, oh yeah, that's actually really smart yeah no he does that too yeah. um so yeah again lots of experimentation you know i would say on, on both the front end and the visual design side we haven't got everything figured out and we're still figuring this out um there's definitely issues with the tools you know some tools seem to lend themselves more than others even in small ways like with photoshop um when since you go to create a new document it asks you what's the width and the height of the document Right, That's a small thing, but straight away you start to think in terms of, well, uh, is it a mobile or tablet or desktop yep. screen, right? Where something like Sketch is an infinite canvas. So it has a slightly different sort of take on it. You can just sort of just throw things onto this infinite canvas. So it maybe lends itself a bit more to, uh, you know, this componentized element collage or style tiley sort of way of thinking. Um, but, you know, like I said, the tools don't really matter. It's it's it's, it's how you approach it. Um, but like I said... As for designers thinking the systemic way, I think good design tends to do that anyway because you would start with like a, um, a, type, a, system, a type system is usually at the root of everything and a grid system will come out of that. But it's, you know, it's a system. It's systems built on systems. There's, there's rules behind it. And so good designs will have rules anyway. I guess the difference is making those rules clear bringing them out and showing them um like i said sometimes it's retroactive right they, well let's slap on some uh, translucent pink columns to show what the <laughs> grid looks like right um nobody yet has decided to slap on a golden ratio fibonacci swirl onto their design so <laughs> that's good right <laughs> that's very <laughs> you know good, what i mean yeah. about the retroactive like oh look it's a system there's totally a system here yeah. um but well, yeah, you know we're still figuring the stuff out
0: yeah that that's better that that you're sort of preemptively getting the designers to think in that way because again historically it's been you know comps have been thrown in my face and i'm like well what about this or what if you add this in here or and there's just no system whatsoever and instead of oh yeah i guess that should be more consistent it's brad you're being difficult (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Stop. Why can't Stop you just it. build it? Why can't you just do what I Can you pre- just make the thing? And it's like, yeah. well, I, technically I can, but that doesn't mean it's going to be yeah. good. So,
2: so what, uh, what tends to happen on projects is that there'll be some lead in with visual design. Like, Visual design would probably begin a bit before front end dev, although it's always good to have a front end dev around to kind of just look over your shoulder and check stuff. Then you have a period of, of both visual design and front end dev happening together, kind of mm-hmm. back and forth, where you know, get it into web browsers, look at it, and maybe adjust the visual designs. But then there comes a point where it's like, it's not worth going back into Photoshop, Sketch, Illustrator, whatever your tool is, at this point. It's like, we just need to be doing this in browsers, and there's no point... um, Going like it's just wasted effort to yeah. reflect those decisions and those changes in the visual design files because those visual design files aren't the deliverable, right? Those those are tools to get you to the deliverable, which is the final website. Yep. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's different from project to project where that point is, the point at which it's like, yeah, there's no, you know, you don't need to go back to the visual design files at this point. Let's just sit together and, and make changes in CSS Web Inspector, you know?
0: Yeah, working with working with Dan, it was it was fantastic because we we do everything in the browser and then it'd be like at this point in time things are just looking really awkward and and that, so he'd go actually just go in and screenshot things and fiddle fiddle with things move them around in photoshop and then say how about this and what we found is that the the vast majority of of what he was producing was was mostly meant for me right that it wasn't yeah. that that's yeah, for client enough. deliverable sort of thing yeah yeah, yeah Which is great. Exactly. so so you've been involved with uh, quite a few of actually, a lot of our guests, uh, you've sort of touched or, or sort of influenced in in some way uh, a lot of the the thinking about style guides and pattern libraries and all of this stuff. Uh, we had uh, Lincoln on from uh, well, formerly of Starbucks, and yeah, and yeah. sort of you were. Uh, do you want to share that story real quick about sure, sort of and how and- that came to be?
2: So like I said, at Clear left, you know, I've been thinking about the systems thinking for quite a while, and I mentioned Natalie, and, and when Natalie left, uh, we had Andy Hume working at, at uh, Clear Left, a great front-end developer, um, and he was giving a talk at South by Southwest a few years ago, kind of about uh, CSS systems. Now, this wasn't necessarily pattern libraries, also, you know, things like OOCSS and yep. SMACS and BEM and, and all this stuff, there's this way of approaching CSS in a more engineering kind of way, I guess. Um, but he did talk about style guides the concept of style guides so he specifically mentioned you know that the BBC had this gel this global experience mm-hmm. language which the whole organisation uses but he pointed out uh, one of the problems with gel is that it's in a pdf right and it would make much more sense for it to be in HTML, to be mm. in the final medium. Um, it was quite fascinating. When it got to the Q&A, somebody stood up and said, I'm from the BBC, <laughs> and uh, I'm from the gel team. And I was kind of like, oh, shit, yeah, Andy's, up, Andy, Andy's in for it now. But he, the guy was like, no, you're absolutely right. It makes no sense that it's in a PDF. It should be in HTML. I was like, oh, thank goodness.
0: <laughs> That's great. <laughs>
2: After this great talk, all these people were coming up to, to chat to Andy about this. And I was kind of hanging out because um, I wanted to congratulate Andy and say, great job with the talk. And so this guy starts chatting to me, um, says he's from Starbucks, and it's, it's Lincoln. And uh, we're having a chat, and he says, you know, we actually have a, a sort of style guide like like the BBC thing, except it is actually in HTML and CSS. And my first question was, is it public? Um, <laughs> and he's kind of like, no, you kind of hadn't thought about it. So I was like, why don't you make it public? And that's kind of my default reaction when people get in touch with me or come up and say, "Hey, we've got a you know a style guide or pattern library or whatever," because I've been blogging about it and talking about it. My first question is, "Is it public?" And can you make it public? Um, and they did, right? The Starbucks guys made it public, and I don't yep. think they thought that much about making it public. But well, boy, boy, mm-hmm. did that ever get you know press? It was like, wow, yeah. this huge coup for them. It was great. So I think they're very, very happy they did make it public. And in general, I just love to see people sharing things. I mean, style guides, but but in general, I like people, I like when people blog, I like when people say, hey, I solved this problem, here's how I did it. You know, this worked for me, maybe it won't work for you, but I'm going to document what worked for me. Yeah.
1: It's kind of how the whole web works.
2: Exactly. Right. When I was first learning to make websites, I was viewing source, I was reading, I was on mailing lists, um, I was reading Ask Dr. Web, right, on Zeldman.com. Yep. These people were just sharing their knowledge and... I want to make sure we we keep that and whatever new thing comes along in front end development or visual design or whatever I like it that our default position should be let's share this let's let's put it out there even if it's something that's clearly just for you I mean I I, I link to style guides all the time just last week there was let's see Heroku put one live yeah it's beautiful um, yeah GitHub updated theirs they put theirs out there and I say in the link look this is really only useful for the people at Heroku and GitHub but check out how they're doing it right that to see how other people are doing it's not that you're going to take that actual code right you're not going to take their markup or their css and use it in your own site but to see how they have approached it what the thinking was behind it, and go oh i see you know and that can influence uh your own way and you know what works for you is going to be completely different to what works for starbucks or or mailchimp or uh, heroku or github but the fact that you can look at these other examples is fantastic
0: Yep, and I think, and it's not all idealistic. I mean, although that's, I'm fully supporting that, obviously. Uh, But, but guest after guest, the people, you know, well, one of the reasons why we even have them on is because their style guides are live, so that we could, you know, we could look at them. Uh, But, but with especially with people like Gina Bolton at Salesforce, she specifically joined their team because she was in love with their style guide and i just think that yeah. so so it i get really frustrated whenever because I, I i talk a lot about you know sharing and being open and all of that stuff and it, it's always a oh, my boss won't let me and you know yeah whenever. and it's like whenever you think about you know how you actually reach people and and get people on board and everyone's everyone is always struggling to hire talented folks and it's like well you need to show them the goods you need to show them yep. what you can do and and mm-hmm. i think that these these style guides are a great way to to show like look we're we're working using sort of modern techniques modern technologies you, we, we can show off you know how we do things and that becomes like a massive recruitment tool which is awesome
2: yeah. And my general attitude with a lot of this is, you know, it's easier to ask for forgiveness than for permission. <laughs> totally. Right, just just go and do it. And if you get flack from the boss, even though you're getting all this great positive press, um, say, oh, sorry, uh, do you want me to take it down now? And they'll usually say, no, well, now you've done it. You know, it <laughs> um, you know I, that was kind of my attitude with with stuff like the, the open device lab. I basically just said, threw the doors open and said, hey, anyone can use these devices? Um, without stopping to think or check, you know, whether that was okay or what's the worst right. that could happen. And it's more like, you know, I'll just do it and see what happens. And uh, it's fine.
1: Everything's fine. Yep. So something that I'm quite interested in is uh, how do you kind of, as an agency, mm-hmm. how do you ensure that these style guides are maintained by the client?
2: So that's, that's, a, that's a good question. And in a way it's begging the question because I'm not sure that the style, well, first of all, step back a bit the terminology here I'm going to talk specifically about pattern libraries
0: oh here I know we, know we go into- we're just talking about this <laughs> <right>. what's a <laughs> yeah.
2: style guide what's a pattern library it's, it's,
0: it's worth discussing for sure yeah. okay
2: my my take is what we tend to be talking about at clear left because as I said the audience for this deliverable we're building is uh, developers other developers it's not decision makers it's not designers it's, it's developers who have to actually put the site live right and for that reason the best way, to, I think, to describe what we're providing is a pattern library. It is literally a, a library of front-end patterns. Now, a pattern library, I think, could be part of a style guide. And a style guide could contain other things. It can contain tone of voice. It could contain, you know, here are the colors. Here are the font choices. Here are, you know, um, the classic style guide stuff around, you know, where the logo is positioned relative to the corners. Yeah, all, brand, all that kind of brand stuff. style guides. But yeah. a, right. So yeah brand style guides so i guess a pattern library would be a subset a specific subset yep. of style guides so just having cleared that up that what i'm talking about here is pattern libraries in the case of clear left an agency handing over a pattern library as a deliverable i don't think what we hand over is necessarily what should be maintained in a way what we're handing over is kind of a one-time thing, saying, "Okay, as part of our, you know, engagement, we did the design work, we created a pattern library. Here you go. We think this is what you need to to to, to go on from here." Now, we might highly recommend that that company have their own pattern library, have their own style guide, right? Pattern library and more. But whether they choose to use our deliverable as that as the starting point for that or not is up to them. Um, it would make sense in a lot of cases that okay, we'll take. What Left has given us as a starting point and, you know, going forward, we'll be maintaining, it, we'll be adding to, it, we'll be changing it. But it might also be that for it to really be owned by an organization, the organization kind of has to make it themselves, right? That it isn't something they've inherited, yep. but it's something that comes from within. Um, I think it's really interesting that most of the examples out there are from companies and products rather than agencies right these apps of style guides a lot of your guests mm. on the shows that they, they've made this internally they they, they own it you know they, they've put their uh, blood sweat and tears into it i'm not so sure whether you can be as invested in something that you get given something that's handed over to you um so i know that, that might be a bit controversial but the way i see the pattern libraries at clear left are building is not necessarily as things In of themselves to be maintained, but maybe only as starting points.
1: So kind of blueprints. Yeah, these are deliverable.
2: We think we think they're superior than to delivering pages. We think they're definitely superior to delivering comps. Um but there's a whole step again, I think, into having this kind of living maintained style guide. And I kind of feel like that needs to come from inside the company.
0: It, it, yeah, um, it it absolutely does, and I think it's sort of interesting talking to Dan on an on an earlier episode. Dan Mall, uh, he was sort of talking about his own work, uh, and and it is because it, 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 you don't work for them, so you can't change their culture to to make mm-hmm. this a priority for them. It has to come from within, but. Uh, I think that the opportunity for people working on a contract or agency sort of relationship, uh, what Dan was saying is he's sort of built it into his contracts now, wherever he's sort of, you know, the idea typically is like what we're handing off is is something that should take root and you should develop further and and sort of, uh, and what he's been baking into his uh, contracts has been, I'm going to check in in a few months and we're gonna yep, sort of see yep. how this thing is working out for you. And like yep. I thought I thought that, that was just freaking smart as crap because one, that's more money and more opportunity for the contractor. It's not just like, oh well, they just threw it in the trash can, so you know, shrug your shoulders and move on to the next gig. He's like he's building it in as like as an opportunity to sort of help them help them through.
2: Yeah, we try where wherever possible to have that built into contracts to say, like, well we we'll, we hand over you know a pattern library um and in a way that that marks the end of our work together but we want these extra few days one in a week's time another in maybe 3 weeks time another in you know 6 weeks time these regular intervals to check back in because um, that's the only way you'll ever find out. Like, how clear was this library? Like, how good was the documentation that accompanied it? How self-explanatory were those class names that we thought yeah. were so great? You know? Yeah. D- um, didn't you guys just go
0: through... through that with with Clear Left yeah. or, or with uh, Code for America with the project? Well, that
2: was that was kind of div- that was an interesting one because that was to do with the audience. As I said, usually the audience, um, as in for the pattern library, will be developers, other developers, either front-end or back-end developers, who are taking this and, and, and implementing it. Uh, and it was really interesting with Code for America. So we, we had Anna working with us, which was great. And in the first round, we made sure that the, the CSS was really robust, right? Like putting in a lot of that current thinking about um, really maintainable, robust CSS, which means there's a, there's a trade-off in the HTML where, you know, maybe you've got a lot of class names. But if the developers are the ones doing the HTML and CSS, that's absolutely fine. Now, as it turned out with Code for America, the developers weren't necessarily the ones doing the HTML, right? Because lots of different people were creating, um, you know, new sites or new pages, mm. copying and pasting this stuff. And while it's perfectly reasonable to expect those people to understand, say, basic HTML, you know, what a paragraph tag is, what an H1 is, it's not really fair to expect these people who aren't developers to now have to learn a whole nother vocabulary, which is these great class names we've come up with, right? Right, And so the second phase of work was really interesting where we started to take some of this complexity that would offload it to HTML and put it back into the CSS. And we made it clear in the second round: that now look, we think this CSS is now actually a bit less maintainable, a bit more brittle. It isn't as robust as what we first delivered, but it is the right thing to do for this audience because the people making the pages aren't necessarily developers. Mm. Um, so that was really interesting in a kind of, you know, every project is different, and there's no right answers, and there's no one true way of doing this stuff. It was a, it was a great experience. It was also, frankly, it was great to have a client where we got to revisit stuff. Yeah. Because so often, right, you, you do your work for them, <laughs> yeah. and then it goes live or goes out, and, and then you see all the stuff that you could have done better or could have been fixed. Or now that it's actually live, you want to you wanna iterate, right? Yep. And that's, that is one of the downsides of agency work is… is um, as opposed to product work, is maybe you miss out on the chance of, of iteration, of being able to revisit stuff. So the Code for America project was great for a number of reasons, but one of them was the fact that we had a second round that we got to iterate and revisit this stuff and, and you know, check our assumptions and, and revisit the things we'd um, decided the first round.
1: That was a real eye-opener. I really enjoyed doing that.
2: Yeah, yeah, it was good. it was good. It was good to see how, you know, something we thought was fairly fundamental was maybe, you know, not necessarily true and so we need to revisit it but that's okay it's you know, it all out in the open it was all clear what the problem was and uh, yeah it was a great project
0: <laughs> I'm not speaking because Anna hasn't talked for a while I'm <laughs> oh, sorry <laughs> Awkward pause. (laughs) Awkward pause. That's right. Just
1: sometimes when I do this, I I think that I'm actually listening to the podcast rather than (laughs) like
0: this is great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, keep talking. Are you on a treadmill right now, (laughs) just running along happily? (laughs) That reminds
2: apparently the story of Peter O'Toole being at the theatre. Um, he's, he's he's been out drinking. He's taken some friends to the theater, and they're sitting in the in the audience. And he goes, "Oh, this next bit is great. This is the bit where I come on." Oh shit! <laughs> <laughs>
0: uh, that's excellent. Um, okay. Well. All right. So. Um, I, looking at the time, I actually think that we, we sort of need to wrap up anyway, so so maybe it is good that we don't continue on, although I'm sure we could sort of talk all day. Uh,
1: I really want to, but I also know Jeremy probably needs to eat his dinner.
2: No, you know me, you know, uh, once you wind me up and get me going, I, it's hard to shut yeah. me up. I, I can talk about this stuff all day, but yeah, we should probably... Be merciful upon the ears of the listeners.
0: <laughs> well, thank you, dear listeners, for hanging in there. <laughs> no, we we covered a lot of meaty bits. I feel like it's all right to to end on a on a lighthearted note. I think so. Um, but seriously, okay, thank you so much for 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 coming on the show, and thank you so much again for for your advocacy. It's it it definitely has had a snowball effect. I mean, this podcast wouldn't have existed. I think if the Starbucks style guide weren't released and and so it is it's just it is as a testament to the the openness and sharing nature of the web that this all compounds on it on it on itself and and thankfully we have people like you that sort of instigate and prod and get people to to open up so so thank you so much for all that
2: well thank you guys for doing this podcast and for the same reason right getting people to share what they know
0: Awesome. Well, that's it for this episode of the Style Guides podcast. Thanks again for listening, and thanks, Jeremy, for for being on, and we will see you again. Bye-bye.